Gracious God, we thank you for this foundational truth that shapes us and molds us, that we are forgiven through the finished work of Jesus Christ, not only his substitutionary atoning death, but the victory over death through the power of the gospel in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we, by faith, trust you, so we experience forgiveness. As we trust you, we experience and and long for and look forward to the day that the shackles of death will be loose forevermore. We stand forgiven at the cross and we are a grateful people. We thank you for speaking this wonderful message to us so clearly in and through your word. As you have spoken in the past, we ask speak to our hearts in and through your word this morning in a fresh and a new way. We Your servants are listening. Speak, Lord Jesus, to our heart. It's in your name we pray, the powerful, saving name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 this morning. I wonder this morning, what what are you not willing to do for God? What, what are you not willing to do for God? Oh, I know. I know just a few songs ago, we, with gusto, sung together, I surrender all. And I, I didn't look around and see any of you in this room silently protesting that song. I didn't, I didn't see any of you changing the lyrics midstream, I surrender some. I surrender just these things. But, but all of us, if we're going to be honest and, and truthful in the sanctuary this morning, all of us footnote our alls. We all have the fine print of exclusionary clauses that creep into our discipleship. All of us in this room say, I, I surrender all except that habit. I surrender all except this portion of my finances. I surrender all except my thought life. I surrender all except for what I look at when no one is around. I surrender all, but I won't go to this place. I won't do that. I will not do that. I remember after seminary, after we had the graduation, I was standing with some friends of mine and we were talking about our plans and, and one of the spouses said, uh, we feel called to serve God wherever he would call us to go, especially Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida. That spouse honestly footnoted their family's alls. We all do it. It's a part of our finitude. It's a part of the sinful flesh of our world. It just might be helpful just to, to admit that all is a pretty big word. God asked Abraham to surrender all. To do something that at first glance seems so unthinkable in Genesis chapter 
22. If you're new with us this morning, to catch you up to speed, we've been walking through the section of Scripture in Genesis, from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, that, that tells us the story of Abraham and Sarah. We met them first in Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your kindred. I want you to leave your family and go to the place that I will show you. Because I'm going to bless you and through the land that I provide and through the lineage that I provide, you're going to bless all the nations. So you can imagine the excitement when God said to Abraham, look up at the stars and as they're too innumerable to count, go out to the seashore and pick up the sand. And as the granules of sand float through uh, your open fingers and they're too innumerable to count, so your descendants will be. Where a barren wife by the name of Sarah got her hopes up when her husband came home and told her what God had told him. They pick out the wallpaper for the nursery. They go and pick out the crib and they put it together and they look with longing anticipation when God is going to fulfill his promise. And weeks turn into months and months turn into years and years turn into decades. Two decades to be specific. What happens when you have to wait that long on God's promise. Well, it's tempting to get ahead of God, or maybe even this to help God out. So you have this little interlude, an interlude in which Sarah and Abraham say, Well, here is an Egyptian servant by the name of Hagar, Abraham and Hagar. Maybe you can have a child together and we can help God along. And there is the birth of Ishmael. And it was dissension from the very outset, jealousy from the very outset. Well, you can imagine that. You can imagine after uh, two decades of waiting when finally God fulfills the promise and Sarah has her own child and his name is Isaac, which means he laughs and everybody's laughing. Everybody's excited. Everybody except for Hagar and Ishmael. Last chapter, Sarah said, get, get rid of them. Get, get rid of them. Uh, Isaac at this time was three years old. Ishmael was a young teenager. Get rid of them. And so we see Abraham getting up early, sending Hagar and Ishmael off. And then we pick up the story of, a, of an unthinkable ask. What would you not do for God? Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1, reads, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, 
behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? You think we forgot something back with the servants, Dad? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. It's a transitional phrase at the start of Genesis chapter 22. It's just three words after these things. There's an indeterminate amount of time that is represented in this phrase between Genesis 21 to Genesis chapter 22. We know for sure a time frame of Ishmael being a young teenage boy in the previous chapter, Isaac at the time of Sarah's weaning, he was three. We begin to wonder to ourselves how much time has passed. It seems from the context clues of Isaac's speech, it seems from the context clues of, of the strength of Isaac to be able to carry the things that his dad places upon him, he, he's at least a young teenage boy. We see also in this passage here some hearkening back to previous calls of God to Abraham. They are, uh, there's a symmetry to this story. There's a book ending to this story that hearkens back to the original call in Genesis chapter 12. Well, notice the repetition in this passage here. Well, first notice in Genesis 12, he says, Go forth from your homeland. Where? To the land I will show you. I want you to leave. And then as you take a step of faith, I will give you enough light to take the next step. And so it is in Genesis chapter 22. I want you to go to the place I'm going to show you, to the mountain I am going to show you. Notice in Genesis chapter 12, there's a three-part repetition of the call. God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I want you to leave. I want you to leave your homeland. I want you to leave your birthplace. I want you to leave your kindred to go to the land that I show you. Here in Genesis chapter 22, there's a three-part repetition that's much closer to his heart. As difficult as it would be to leave behind in that original step of faith, so it now is even more personal. Not this time your homeland. Not this time your kindred. Not this time, but, but rather, in Genesis chapter 22, take your son. Not just your son, but your only son. Not just your only son, but the son in which you love. That three-part repetition to, to show how strong of a call God is placing upon Abraham. Now, we can imagine ways that Abraham, the night before, would have stayed up late at night. Now, the passage doesn't tell us any of this. There are these dramatic renderings of this part of the story that has Abraham sweating drops of, of almost like his own Gethsemane, bargaining with God, take me, not him, pleading with God, fist in the air, not this God. We don't see that. Actually, the, the text shows us not a struggle, but it shows us a quickness. And it shows us a willingness to follow when faith doesn't make sense. When our faith in what we're asked to do defies all expectations. Here we have, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham getting up early in the morning. Not sleeping in. Not pushing this, the snooze button and, the, and this psychological desire to postpone what God has called him to do. Rather, he's up early. 
He saddles the donkey. He gets his boy. He gets the servants. There's a three-day journey. There's a three-day journey to, to wander and to wonder. There's a three-day journey to wonder, did I actually hear God call me to do this? There's a three-day journey to, to wander away from the path that God has called him to. But again, when Abraham speaks, we don't get that. We get a clarity of God's call upon his life. Verse 5, he says to the servants, you guys stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, we're going to go over there and we're going to worship and we're going to come again to you. There's a clue to Abraham's thought pattern right here implicit in Genesis 22. Now Isaac is going up with his father and he says, I've got the wood, I've got the knife, I've got the element that is going to strike this so we have fire. But what about the animal? Notice that Abraham says to him, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Trust me, God's in control. And then we read Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and had laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Maybe this is the first time that you've walked into a Christian church. Many of you, it's not. Many of you, your faith journey is a faith journey that was passed on as we had our our family dedication this morning with, with Jack Burgess. We have faith families that are steeped in passing down the, the faith from one generation to the next. And for some of you in this room, you, you've heard this as a Sunday school story. You've heard this in vacation Bible school. You've taught this in kid life. And there is a part where this story becomes far from us. There's a part where this story becomes a story that doesn't have actual human flesh to it. Caravaggio which was a 16th and into the 17th century painter. He painted in early 17th century this painting that was called The Sacrifice of Isaac. And what has always struck me about this painting is the way that Caravaggio, he places light upon Isaac's face. Everything is blackened out and there's the light upon Abraham, there's the light upon the angel of the Lord, but there is, there is this light element upon Isaac. Isaac. And what do you see in Isaac? You see his eyes, eyes of bewilderment and befuddlement. You see his eyes of questioning, his eyes of wondering, and more than that, you see an open mouth. Now again, there's, there's inspiration here. The text doesn't tell us, but, but we wonder if Caravaggio is wondering in this moment if Isaac is verbally protesting. Stop! No! We wonder in this moment if he, if he goes to cry out and, and nothing can come forth in that moment because of the utter horror of the moment. All of our questioning about, well, maybe Isaac goes along with this and he's strong enough. How could Abraham uh, hold him down, a young teenage boy? None of that is addressed by the text whatsoever. All we discover in the text is that Abraham goes to this place where he is willing to offer a son whose mouth is wide open and utter bewilderment. And then we read, 
but, Genesis twenty-two eleven. but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Isaac lives because a ram was slaughtered. Isaac lives because God provided. Now how does this story intersect your story? How, how does this staggering story connect to your life today? You, there, there are two questions that really rise from the pages of Genesis chapter 22, and they intersect to the pages of your life and of my life here. And, and the first question is, is, what can we discover in the midst of a test? You see, Genesis chapter 22 from the very outset tells us that after these things, God tested Abraham. And just as God tested Abraham, no Christian, no follower of God, that you will be tested by God also. That a part of the refining process of God's work in your life and in my life is he utilizes circumstances. Sometimes not of his doing, sometimes of his doing, but he works all things together for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And he uses all of the raw material of our life. And oftentimes he uses those experiences as testing times to be able to reveal, will we lean on him or will we lean on our own understanding? The anonymous writer of Hebrews, he pauses around this story. And he gives us a little bit of insight in, into how Abraham would have so, to, said to his servants, we're going up there and we're coming back. And the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that Abraham, in the midst of this test, had so much faith, had so much faith in the promises of God, that even if Abraham struck his son dead, that he believed that God would raise him back to life. He had a trust that defies defies all human rationale. And so as we see this passage here, I think it's important for us to be able to say in, in a strong disclaimer that this is a descriptive part of the Bible that is not prescriptive for your life nor my life. In this way, God is not going to ask any parent in this room to do what Abraham did to his son or was willing to do to his son. The Bible clearly, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all throughout the Old Testament, it clearly separates the Israelites from the pagan nations around him uh, and, and to say that he is not pleased with human sacrifice. Now, I, I say that, not thinking that any of you are tempted to do that, but we do live in a day where people say, God told me to do X, Y, and Z. And I think it's important to say that when we think 
that God has told us to do something that his word clearly has told us not to do, it isn't God telling us to do that. And so it is with this descriptive, one-time event that is illustrative for you and for me, but it is not prescriptive for us to repeat ever again. Now, with that said, some of you are thinking, I'm going to wipe the sweat off my brow. God's not going to ask me to do difficult things. Well, of course he's going to ask you to do difficult things. Of course, Abraham's test was, was a particular test, but we're all tested in this room, and our tests come in different shapes and sizes. All of us are tested. I mean, I know we have some teachers in this room. I know we have some administrators in this room. I know we have students in this room, elementary students, uh, middle school, high school, college students, graduate students. We've got people that have given tests. We've got people taking tests. And boy, tests come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. I remember about 10 years ago when I first started teaching as an adjunct for New Orleans Seminary, I had my students before me, the first test that I ever gave, and it was all essays, short questions with a lot of writing that the students had to do. It took some of them two hours to finish. It took some of them two and a half hours to finish. They come up at the end of the class and they're saying, boy, I've never taken a test like that. Now, what I didn't realize and didn't think carefully about was, is while it took them two and a half hours to take that test, it was going to take me a long time to grade those tests. I never gave a test like that again. I mean, it was true and false. It was multiple choice. If I, if I could have not have messed up accreditation for New Orleans Seminary, I would have given them Scantron test that I go to a computer and run through it if I could have. I mean, you, you test in all kinds of different ways in school. Some, sometimes a, a teacher or professor gives you a take-home exam. Sometimes they give you a, a project to do at the end of the term to turn in that's the culmination of the whole semester. Sometimes it's the pop quizzes. Sometimes it is a multiple choice or it's a short answer. While tests vary, the purpose of the test remains to show what is there, to reveal what is inside of you, what you've hidden, what you know. It is to stretch you. It is to grow you. And so God uses this a myriad of tests in your life, in my life. They, they come in different shapes and sizes. For some of you, it, it, it was the test of being asked to serve here at this church in a way that you would never have pursued. It, it took you out of your comfort zone. And when God orchestrated the ask, and when you were hesitant to say yes, you realize now in hindsight how God has stretched you as you walked by faith and not by comfort nor sight. For some of you, it was early on in your Christian life where you realized that God was Lord of all of your resources. And a part of the lordship of your resources is to give back in tithes and offerings. And you realize, oh, the lordship of Christ has an implication for my budget and my checkbook. And you realize, I'm not really sure how I can live on 90 or less than even 90 and and still have the way of life that God has called me to. I need 100. And it was in that moment that God began to stretch you and he began to test you and he began to say to you, will you walk by faith and not by sight? There's some of you that in this room, a a test came in the circumstances of sitting in a a physician's consultation room. 
And that physician looked at you and, and she said to you words that, that shook you at your core when that diagnosis was given. And it was not only in that day, but in the days ahead that you had to choose fear or faith. Fear or faith. There's some of you in this room that have walked through the testing of, of the death that was unexpected of a loved one. It was in that way as the days that were come, you'd have to walk by faith and, and not by fear. It was some of you in this room that went through the, the downturn of the economy, went through the layoff of your company, and you had to move, you had to transfer, you had to walk by faith and not by fear. But all of us in this room, we will be tested by the circumstances of life. And God will allow those tests. He will use those tests to reveal that we are called to lean on him even when it defies our own human understanding. Do you notice in Genesis chapter 22, God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to go to the mountain where I will show you. God did not give Abraham the why nor the where when he tested him. He didn't answer why I'm doing this. He didn't answer, where am I asking you to go? And you know, in your life and in my life, oftentimes God tests us and he doesn't give us the why this side of heaven. He doesn't always even give us the where of the destination that this test is going to take us to. But when you don't know the answer of why, you don't know the answer of where, I'm here to remind you, child of God, you firmly know who. Who will never leave you nor forsake you, even in the worst testing of your life? Who has promised to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death? Who has promised that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor any principalities will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? When you don't know where, when you don't know why, who is firm? What can we learn in our testing time? But the second question, the final question that we need to answer is, is where's the gospel in the midst of this text? How does Genesis 22 intersect with the heart of our faith, the, the finished work of Jesus Christ? Uh, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, it's a story that's floating around that he utilized in one of the family devotions for his family, all of Genesis 22, and he was telling it to his children. And it was in that moment, as he was talking about the throat that was bare, he was, he was talking about the knife that was raised, that his wife, Katie, uh, protested, surely not. Surely not. God would have never treated his own son like this. And it was in that moment that Martin, and it was in that moment that Katie paused, when the realization of the gospel flooded over them, that it is exactly what God the Father has done in the death and the burial of his own son. John 3.16. John 3.16 is filled in with the very words of Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. For God so loved the world that he would give his son, not just his son, but his only son. Not just his only son, but the son he loved. So that we would not have to perish, but we, through faith, can have everlasting life. You need to be reminded here this morning that Isaac lived because a substitute was provided by God. And for you to live and for me to live, because our sin debt is a debt that we cannot pay. Our alienation from a holy God because of what we do 
now, what we've done in the past, and what we will do in the future, it separates us from an unmediated relationship with him. We can't be in a perfect holy God's presence with our sin that we all know so easily entangles us. But here's the good news, that he has paid it all, Jesus Christ, that on the cross of Christ Jesus, that, that mountain that God promised that he would show to Abraham, you know where Mount Moriah is? It is in Jerusalem. You know what else happened in Jerusalem? There was another son that hung upon a cruel, coarse Roman cross. And there would be no angels to intervene as the, the pain of that cross was laid upon God the Father's Son. No one would take him off that cross alive. He bore your sin. He bore my sin. He is the ram in the thicket. Years ago, there was a band by the name of Sixpence None the Richer. Maybe some of you are familiar with that band. It is a band that had its height of popularity about 15 years ago. It was a band that much of their lyrics had Christian overtones to it, and they had one kind of one hit wonder that, that popped into the mainstream radio play called Kiss Me, and it, it, it garnered them so many fans that, that one evening they, they were performing on the David Letterman show. So one evening they were on the late night with David Letterman. And so the way that the interviews had gone prior to that, they had some time before Sixpence None the Richer was to perform. And so Letterman called over the, the lead singer, Lee Nash, and they interviewed. And the one question that Letterman asked was this. And that question was, what are the origins of your name, Sixpence None the Richer? I mean, that's just such a strange band's name. And so she in that moment said, well, there's a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. And he wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And in that book, Lewis, in this little aside, tells the story of how a father was asked by his son. The son requested to, to get a sixpence, a, a small uh, British currency that wasn't worth much, to, so the son could go to the store to buy his father a gift. And when the son came back and gave him, the father, the gift, the father accepted it gladly, understanding that the father was sixpence none the richer because of the gift. He paid for his own gift. And so it is in Genesis chapter 22. God asked Abraham to surrender all to him, to show his faith in him. But when Abraham, in that moment, puts all of his faith in God, it's in that moment that God provides the sixpence. It is in that moment that God provides the very ram to be offered that in that moment appeases God. And that moment shows that God is sovereign and he is in control as Abraham submits to his lordship. Letterman didn't hear the Genesis 22 part, heard the mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis part. And he paused as Lee Nash was telling the story. And he said, well, that is a beautiful story. No, no sarcasm here, no irony here. He said, if we could just keep that little sliver of enlightenment with us, things in our world would be so much better. And I want you to hear 
And that Christ-haunted story that intersected the mainstream consciousness of our nation, the millions of people that would have listened into that, I want you to hear that this story is more than a little sliver of enlightenment, but rather it is an earth-shattering reality that changes everything when you understand this, that God provided for you and me the greatest gift ever given, and that is the gift of his one and only beloved Son. And when you understand this, that our salvation was purchased with a lamb that takes away the sins of the world, and that lamb has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ. How do we respond to this? When he has paid it all, when he, the Father, has given it all, we thank him with our life. We realize that nothing is off limits. There's no part of our life. There's no habit that doesn't come under his lordship. There is no perspective that doesn't come under his lordship. There is no place that we can run that is away from the sovereign rule of a God who loves us and has paid it all for us. We realize this morning with gratitude that he, God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And when we realize that, not just in our head, but when we realize that in our heart, we live a life of gratitude, not earning his love, but understanding that he has shown us his love in the ultimate gift of sending his son, the ultimate once and for all rim in the thicket. What, in light of this glorious gospel news, what will you not do for God? What part of your life doesn't deserve his lordship? In light of all that he has given you, what are those footnoted exclusionary clauses that you steal this morning hanging on to. Let us pray. Lord, it is in this moment that we desire to hear from you. Speak, Lord Jesus, to our hearts. As our choir leads us, May we open our hearts to you to allow the power of the Holy Spirit to convict and to comfort, to reveal those idols that need to be slain this morning, those areas that we have put off limits to you. May our all be open to your gaze even now, even now. Speak to our hearts, Lord Jesus.